Turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Scripture reading this morning is going to be Colossians chapter 1 verses 21 through 23. If you are using one of the Pew Bibles, you will find Colossians 1 on page 983. Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 21. This is the very Word of God. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. That is the reading of God's word. Let us pray and ask for his blessing upon the preaching of his word here this morning. Father God, we come before you humbly asking that according to your promise, you would attend to the reading and the preaching of your word, that you would not allow it to return to you void, that you would cause it to bring forth fruit in our lives. By its power, may our minds be renewed and our lives transformed to the praise of your glory, that we might bring forth in abundance those good works which are done in accordance with the knowledge of you. This we pray in Jesus' name, and in Jesus' name's sake, amen. This Advent season, we have been preparing to celebrate Jesus' birth on Christmas Day by meditating upon His work, the the work of redemption that is set before us here in Colossians chapter 1. We saw first the the goal of our redemption. We see this in, in Paul's thanksgiving. We see that we have been redeemed to walk in the footsteps of faith and love. Jesus did not redeem us so that we could go on living in our sins with impunity, but rather He redeemed us that we might bear fruit and to grow in every good work in the knowledge of God. Next, we saw the the nature or the, the substance of our redemption, what it is that Christ has done that we might walk in this new life. We saw that that our redemption consists in the forgiveness of our sins, in deliverance from the dominion of darkness, and qualification for inheritance in the coming kingdom of God. Then last Sunday we saw that the one who has done all this for us, the, the person of our Redeemer, is none other than the invisible God made visible in human flesh. The Creator God Himself come to redeem for Himself a people for His own possession. This morning we will consider the condition upon which this redemption is ours. Writing to the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, Paul can say with confidence that the Father has qualified them for inheritance with the saints. He can say with confidence that they have been redeemed and that their sins have been forgiven. But elsewhere in this letter, and in all his letters, and throughout the Scriptures, we, we learn that not everyone 
benefits from Christ's work. Jesus' work of redemption does not automatically save everyone. Some will be saved in Christ, others will not. This raises a vital question. If everyone is not saved automatically, indiscriminately, then what is the condition of redemption? What is it that separates those who are saved from those who are not? That is precisely the question that Paul answers for us in these verses. First, he he reminds us of who we were apart from Christ. Next, he he reviews for us what it is that Christ has done and, and will do for His people. And then finally, He shows us the condition upon which we might participate in His redemptive work. He, he shows us what we must do, what is required of us if we would be saved. And these will be our three points this morning. So first who we were apart from Christ. Paul says it quite bluntly. He he says that we were alienated, hostile in mind, and doing evil deeds. So first, we were alienated. The NIV adds, from God. And, And surely that's what Paul means to imply. We who were created for intimate, personal communion with God, with our Creator, with our Heavenly Father, we who were created for for relationship with Him were alienated from Him, cut off, separated. I wonder if you've ever been alienated from someone with whom you previously had a a close relationship or, or someone with whom you should have had a close relationship. Alienated from a spouse, from a parent or from a child, from a sibling or a best friend. That is the sort of broken relationship that Paul is describing here. Each and every one of us was designed for communion with God. We were created in His image and and given a residence in His presence that we might know Him and be known by Him, that we might delight in Him and that He might delight in us. But instead, we were alienated, estranged, far off. And more than this, Paul says we were also hostile in mind towards him. It's not just that we didn't have a relationship, it's that we didn't want one. As Paul says in Romans chapter 5, we were enemies of God. Now admittedly, this is not how most people think of themselves today. You would be hard-pressed to to find someone who regards themselves as, as an enemy of God or as hostile in mind towards Him. In fact, most people today believe that they are seeking God. That they desperately want God's power in their lives. They they realize that that they need someone bigger and stronger than themselves to help them make it through this cruel world. But the truth is, 
that each and every one of us was hostile in mind towards God. My, my former pastor in Asheville put it this way. He said, many people are seeking God and, and desire His power, but they are not seeking a Lord to whom they must bow. Think about it for a moment. God claims not only to be God, not only to be the Almighty, not only to be the, the Creator, but He claims to be our rightful Lord. He announces Himself as our Supreme King, the one to whom we owe unreserved and absolute allegiance. And inasmuch as we reject that claim, we are hostile in mind towards Him. This means that each of us were, in fact, hostile in mind because He presumed to tell us how we should live. He presumed to tell us how we should steward our money. He, he presumed to tell us with whom we could have sex. He, he presumed to tell us how we must relate to those whom we don't like all that much. And we resent anyone who presumes to tell us how we should live, even if that someone is God, maybe especially if that someone is God. Because when God tells us how to live, when He claims lordship over our lives, He does not claim lordship over this or that aspect of our lives, but He claims lordship over every square inch of our lives. And therefore, we were especially hostile towards Him. There may even be some here this morning who still are, who still resent His claim to Lordship, who, who hate the fact that you must either submit to His will or face His wrath. It doesn't seem right to you that that should be your choice. It, it doesn't seem right to you that those should be your only options, and you resent the God who would put you in such a position. Hostile in mind towards Him. This is who we were. We were alienated from God, and we were His enemies. Hostile towards Him. And because we were hostile towards Him, because we resented His rule, His Lordship over our lives. Paul says that we were disobedient indeed towards Him. In fact, he says it's stronger than this. He, he says that we were doing evil deeds. Now again, this is not how most of us would describe ourselves. Evil is a strong word. We are hesitant to, to use it. We, we reserve it for things like mass shootings and, and terrorist bombings. We rarely, if ever, apply it to our own actions. We make mistakes. Sometimes we may even do something that is wrong. But rarely, if ever, do we regard our deeds as evil. And yet, that's what Paul says. Paul says we were, we were doing evil deeds. Why does he put it so strongly? Well, think about what evil means. According to Scripture, a deed is evil when it is contrary to God's good, perfect, and pleasing purposes. 
In the beginning, God put man in a garden of delight, a garden of peace and abundance, a garden of universal flourishing where everything was as it was supposed to be. But when our first parents sinned, they were expelled from that garden. Because of their sin, we now live east of Eden. We now live in a world under God's curse rather than filled with His blessing. We live in a world infested with thorns and thistles of every kind, a world where nothing is as it was meant to be, where everything is bent and broken. But because of His great love for us, God did not leave mankind to perish in the misery of their rebellion. On the contrary, God chose to redeem for Himself a people. He chose to to reconcile a people to Himself, a people whom He would restore to life as it was supposed to be. And to this chosen people, He gave His law. He didn't give the law so that they might earn this new life, but rather he gave them the law as the instructions for this new life. God gave his people the law in order to show them the way of abundant living, to show them how to abide and dwell in his shalom. God's law is the blueprint for life as it is supposed to be. God's law marks out for us the the way of well-being, the the way of, of blessed living. And therefore, when we transgress God's law, we're not simply violating an arbitrary rule. Much more than that, when we transgress God's law, we are working against His design. We are working against His good purposes. One professor puts it this way, we are vandalizing his shalom. And therefore, we are working against the well-being of our neighbor. When we break God's law, we are truly doing evil because we are doing that which brings harm rather than blessing to those whom God has woven into the fabric of our lives. And so Paul was right. Because each of us is a lawbreaker, all of us were doing evil deeds. This is who we were. We were alienated from God. We were hostile in mind towards Him. And we were actively working against His good design by doing evil. This is who the Colossians were. And this is who we were. Because this is who all men are apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, this is our condition. Apart from Christ, this is who we were. And if you remain apart from Christ this morning, this is who you still are. If you are here this morning and you have not received and rested upon Jesus Christ as as your Lord and Savior, then you continue this morning as one alienated from God. 
Whether you recognize it or not, you, you continue this morning who, who rejects his lordship and therefore is hostile in mind towards him. And you are one who does evil because you do not live according to his law. Now, I know all that sounds like bad news, and, and it is. But it is also the beginning of the good news. For Paul is telling you why you need a Savior. He is telling you that apart from Christ, you are under God's curse. That apart from Christ, you are an object of His wrath. That apart from Christ, you are utterly without Hope, that is your true condition apart from Him. And it is good to have a proper diagnosis. It is, it is good to know what is truly wrong with you. Because Paul is telling you not only that you need a Savior, more than this, he is also telling you that you have the Savior you need. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, born of a virgin, wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger, so that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's why His birth was announced as good news of great joy for all people, because He came as the Savior we need. We, we see this clearly when we consider what He has done for us. Look with me again at verse 22. What is it that this baby born in Bethlehem has done for His people? Paul says that He has now reconciled us in His body of flesh by His death in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. What I want you to notice here is that, that Paul mentions both a past completed action and a yet future action. He, he tells us what Christ has done, and he tells us what Christ will yet do. He mentions first the, the past completed action. He, he says he has now reconciled us to God. Think about that language. The, the language of reconciliation suggests the, the restoration of relationship, that, that relationship for which we were created, that, that relationship which was lost through our first parents' sin. That relationship has been restored. We who were alienated and estranged from God have been restored to right relationship with Him. We who were enemies under wrath are now beloved Children standing in His grace, enjoying His blessing. This means that He is again our God, and we are His people. It means He is now for us. It means that, that He again regards us as His special possession, the, the apple of His eye. And this is a past completed action. It is true right now. Think about what that means. It means that, that we can know peace 
A peace that transcends our circumstances right now because he is for us. It means that we can live without anxiety or fear even right now because he is our God. It means we can rejoice even in the midst of our trials. We can rejoice even as we groan right now. Because we are his people. All this is true. Because he has now reconciled us to God. And how has he done this? Paul says that he has reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death. As Jesus himself said, he gave his life as the ransom for our lives. He died that that we might live. He drank the cup of God's curse that we might instead drink deeply the cup of his blessing. The beautiful irony which we have even sung of this morning is that his birth is good news because he was born to die. He was born to die for us in our place as our substitute. He was born to die that through his death we might be reconciled to our Father. This is what he has done. But notice Paul also mentions a a yet future action. He says that that Jesus reconciled us for a purpose. He he reconciled us in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now, strictly speaking, the, the grammar does not require that this be a yet future action. I could say that I went to the store a past completed action, in order to, to buy bread, which could also be a past completed action. However, we know that the presentation that Paul has in mind here is yet future because of what he says in verse 23. Look there with me. He says that Jesus will present us holy and blameless before the Father if indeed we continue in the faith. We'll be coming back to that in in just a moment, but for now, simply recognize That this way of putting it means that that the presentation that Paul has in mind, when we will be presented holy and blameless before the Father, is yet future. It will happen if. And this has important implications for how we understand what Paul is talking about. Because there are two senses in which Christians can be holy and blameless. One is related to our justification, The other is related to our sanctification. I know those are are theological terms and pastors aren't supposed to use theological terms, but but these are biblical terms and they're important terms. So let let me define them for you. Justification refers to God's declaration concerning our standing before Him. In justification, God declares as a judge that we are right that we are just, that we are righteous in His sight. We are, in ourselves, sinners, guilty and and justly condemned. But our sins have been forgiven. They have been covered with 
the blood never to be counted against us. The record of debt that stood against us has been nailed to the cross. In Christ, we are counted entirely righteous. In Christ, we are declared to have a right to all the blessings of the covenant because in Christ, through justification, we are counted as perfectly faithful covenant keepers. Of course, we have not kept the law perfectly ourselves, but Christ's righteousness, His perfect obedience is counted as belonging to us. As Paul says in Romans chapter 5, His obedience has made us righteous in God's sight. This is why Paul can say in Romans chapter 8 that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Though in ourselves we are sinners justly condemned, in Christ we are justified righteous, holy, and blameless, and above reproach in His sight. And some think that is what Paul is is talking about here, that he is going to present us before the Father as justified sinners. But I don't think that's what Paul actually has in mind. I don't think that's what Paul is, is talking about, because as we've seen, Paul is talking about a yet future presentation. For Paul, justification is a past completed action. It is finished. It is complete. We have been justified. In fact, for for Paul, justification comes before and is the basis of our reconciliation. We see this, for example, in in Romans 5.1 where he writes, Therefore, since we have been justified, That's the the basis, that's the condition. Since we have been justified, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because we have been justified, we have now been reconciled. So Paul would not say that we have been reconciled in order that we might be justified. He, He must have something else in mind. Because he is talking about a future presentation, he must be talking about our sanctification. Sanctification is a word that that refers to God's work, His his progressive work of making us holy in ourselves. Justification speaks of us being declared righteous in Christ. Sanctification is the work He does through Christ by the Spirit where He makes us actually holy. Holy, where he, he renews us in the whole man, transforming us more and more after the image of the Son of God. Paul is saying that Jesus reconciled us in order to sanctify us. He, he reconciled us in order to make us holy. It's the, the same thing he says in, in Titus 2, that, that Christ came... to to not only redeem a people from lawlessness, but to purify them and to make them a people zealous for good works, a a people who renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. 
This was Christ's purpose. He reconciled us that he might make us holy. But but Paul is saying more than this. He, He is saying that not only is this his purpose, but this is a purpose he will accomplish. The day is coming when Jesus will complete this good work. The day is is coming when he will present us to the Father holy and blameless and above reproach. And that is the best of good news. Remember what I said about God's law. It is the blueprint for shalom. It 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 is the picture of how we can flourish. It is the way of delight. And so Paul is saying that Jesus came in order to restore us to the full joy and delight of holiness. Holiness is not what we do for him in some begrudging way to to pay him back for saving us from hell. Holiness is the climax of our salvation. Contrary to Satan's lies, it is our sinful rebellion that makes us miserable. Yes, there is some fleeting pleasure to sin, but it leads to death. It leads to misery. We see this in the final chapters of of Judges. You remember the oft-repeated refrain, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. To many today, it sounds like the American dream. Every man free to follow his heart and, and do what is right in his own eyes. We believe this is the the secret to our happiness. If if everyone would just leave us alone and let us do what we want, then we would finally be happy. Then we would finally know satisfaction. That is Satan's lie. The final chapters of Judges show us that when every man does what is right in his own eyes, it does not lead to heaven, but to hell on earth. This then is the joy of God's salvation in Christ. He saves us from the misery of our sin. Not just from its guilt, but from its power to ruin our lives. He he does not save us so that we can go on sinning with impunity. If sin leads to hell on earth, what kind of salvation would that be? No, He saves us from sin. He saves us that we might be free from sin. He he saves us that we might walk in newness of life, a life shaped by His law of perfect freedom. This is what Christ came to do for His people. This is the salvation that is offered in Him. This is the salvation purchased by His blood. But it leaves us with an important question. If Jesus came to save his people from their sins, as the angel said, who are his people? For whom does Christ do this? What is the condition of redemption? It's the question that Paul answers in verse 23. Look with it. Paul writes, you who were once alienated, you who who have now been reconciled, you who will one day be presented holy and blameless and above reproach, all of this will be yours if, indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister." And so there you have it. The the condition is continuing in the faith. 
The, the condition is remaining stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. That verb that's, that's translated as continue is a, is a wor- word that is often used to, to describe remaining in a place, re- remaining in a land, remaining in a, in a particular location. The question is, what location does Paul have in mind? Where is it that we are to continue? Where is it that we are to abide? What does he mean by the faith? And the first thing that we must see is that Paul is talking about the faith, not our faith. The article is important. He is using faith objectively rather than subjectively. He, he is talking about the object believed in rather than the, the subject's act of believing. Yes, the, the subject's faith is important. Earlier, he gave thanks for the Colossians' faith in Christ Jesus. But here, he is talking about the faith, the faith that their faith is in. And so what is the faith? Simply put, it is the good news that that Paul has been rehearsing for us. It is the good news of of Jesus' redemptive work, what he earlier called the, the word of truth, the gospel. The faith once for all delivered to the saints is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The faith is the good news that the eternal Son of God became flesh. That he was born of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. That he lived a sinless life under the law and then gave his spotless life as the ransom price for our redemption. That in him, by his blood, we might be forgiven. And through his, just his resurrection, raised to new and living hope. Reconciled to the Father and qualified for an inheritance in the coming kingdom. This good news of what Jesus has done is the faith to which Paul is referring. It is the faith in which we must continue. And it's important for us to see this for for at least two reasons. First, it it reminds us that our faith, our, our personal subjective faith, has a particular object. It is not our act of of believing that reconciles us to the Father, but rather it is believing in Jesus Christ as He is revealed to us in the Gospel. This is the reason that that Paul piles up three clarifying statements at the end of of verse 23. Notice how he describes this this Gospel, this this faith in which the Colossians must continue. He, He says it's the Gospel that they heard. It is the gospel that is proclaimed in all creation under heaven. It is the gospel of which Paul himself is a minister. What is Paul's point? He he, he is driving home the point that there is but one gospel. One gospel of Jesus Christ. The same gospel he proclaims is the gospel Epaphras proclaims. It's It's the same gospel that was proclaimed in Jerusalem, that was proclaimed to the Gentiles. It's the same gospel that is proclaimed by all. The same gospel proclaimed in all creation under heaven. There is but one gospel, and it is this one gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that must be believed. This is why sincerely following another religion can't save Muslims and Jehovah's Witnesses and and Mormons can have sincere faith. But their sincere faith is not in the faith. 
They sincerely believe, but they sincerely believe a different gospel. And therefore, they do not meet the condition of redemption. We sometimes say that it's the, the thought that counts especially this time of year when everyone's giving gifts. It's likely that that you will get a gift that you don't really like all that much uh, sometime this week. But you will still be thankful because it's the thought that counts. At least you should. The person who gave you the gift took the time and and made the effort to, to give you a present. It was an expression of love, even if what they bought isn't something you particularly like. But Paul wants us to know that in salvation, it is not the thought that counts. It is not our sincerity or our earnestness that saves. It is not our act of believing. But rather, it is faith in Jesus Christ. For He is the only Redeemer. We must believe in Him as He is revealed to us in the Gospel. And this points us to the second reason it's important for for us to understand that, that Paul is talking about an objective faith here. Seeing this reminds us that the gospel is first and and foremost about what Jesus has done and will do for us. It is not a prescription for what we must do for him. As Tim Keller often puts it, the gospel is good news, not good advice. He's not telling us what we must do to reconcile ourselves to God, but rather what God has done to reconcile us to himself. And this means that we must believe and we must rest in the one whom he has sent that we might be saved. Next Sunday, we will return to this idea. We will will consider in more depth what it means to be stable and steadfast and, and not shifting from the hope. But this morning, I simply want you to see that what is required of us, if we would be reconciled, if we would know peace, and if we would have the hope of one day being presented to the Father holy and blameless and above reproach, if we would participate in all the benefits of Christ's work, what is required of us is that we would receive and rest upon Him alone for our salvation, that we take our stand upon the gospel and not be moved. And so let me ask you, as you get prepared to to celebrate Christmas this week, Where do you stand? The old hymn says, On Christ the solid rock I stand, All other ground is sinking stand. This morning ask yourself, Do I stand upon the rock? Am I resting in the only Redeemer of God's people? Or am I still standing in the sinking sand of human effort? Your answer to that question makes all the difference. If you are standing on Christ, then verse 22 describes you. You have now been reconciled in His body of flesh by His death. You will be presented holy and blameless and above reproach before the Father. If you are standing, not upon your own efforts, if you're trusting not in in your own sincerity, but if you are resting in Him and in Him alone, 
these words describe you. But if not, if you have never received and rested upon Christ for your salvation, then you still live in verse 21. You are still alienated. You are still hostile. And whether you see it or not, your deeds are still evil. But it's not too late. For this is the day of salvation. And if you would believe upon him even now, you can know peace. You can be reconciled. And you can be given a new and living hope. A guarantee that one day you will be presented to the Father holy and blameless and above reproach. For Christ came for this very purpose. He was born to die, that by his death you might be reconciled, that through his blood you might be washed pure and blameless, restored to the full delight of holiness. And so ask yourself, where do I stand this morning? Am I standing upon the rock? Have I believed the good news? Am I resting in the only Savior of God's elect? If you are, you have a living hope unassailable. There's nothing in creation that can separate you from God's love. And that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the salvation that you have accomplished for us in Christ. And we thank you that what you require of us is to receive and to rest. Father, left to ourselves, we have no hope. There was nothing we could do to, to reconcile ourselves to you. But you do not leave us to our own devices. You do not leave us to perish in the misery of our sin. But rather, you so loved us that you gave your only Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Father, may we receive this joyful news this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, and for his name's sake, amen.